0: Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Hey folks, today I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Zachary Carabell. Zachary is an author, president of River Twice Capital, and the founder of the Progress Network, an initiative of the New America Foundation. Being a person who is well-versed on the history of American capitalism, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to get Zachary's input on the Silicon Valley bank debacle and the current conversations surrounding the banking sector in this moment of financial uncertainty. But our dialogue quickly turned to the subject of polarization, how we ought to be understanding it, and how our conventional narratives surrounding what divides us as a country may fail to reflect the realities of our moment. Zachary is someone who excels at challenging conventional wisdom on multiple fronts. But one bit of insight he does affirm and make a strong defense of in our conversation, as in others, is that things really are not as bad as they appear, that human progress is still real, and that we do ourselves a disservice when we fail to recognize the things that are still going right in America. And now, Zachary Carabell. Zachary Carabel. Welcome to Uniting America, buddy. How you doing?
1: Thank you, John. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm glad to uh, glad to have you on today. I thought that uh, you and I could cover a fair amount of terrain, uh, sort of circling around our understanding of polarization in American society. Uh, what are the aspects of it that are perhaps you know overemphasized, underappreciated? but i did want to start with a little piece of sort of you know headline news because i i figured that um you know given your uh, uh, given your uh, uh, expertise as a historian of american capitalism and somebody with insights into the uh, financial uh, financial industry i thought that it might be interesting to just sort of get your your hot take on the silicon valley bank episode um is this something that uh, is a harbinger of uh, greater disruption in the, in the financial sector a la 2000. Two thousand eight, or is it an isolated and uh, contained affair?
1: Look, I don't think it's a harbinger of 2008, but if you had asked me in early 2008 if the failure of Bear Stearns or all these other things was a harbinger of the crisis, I probably would have said no. So sometimes these things are hard to anticipate. They are much clearer in retrospect. I do think the systemic realities of the last major financial crisis in 2008, 2009, which really globally went on even for a few years after that, just aren't in play right now. You know, the banks are much better shape. You don't have this massive amount of exposure well in excess of assets and not to get too wonky, but Silicon Valley bank, it was a very odd bank failure in that they pretty much had the deposits on hand to meet what their demands were, as opposed to like Lehman Brothers, where they were lending out whatever, 10 to 1 of whatever their deposit base is. Meaning if Lehman had... A billion dollars in deposits, I mean, obviously had a lot more than that. They had like $10 billion in loans. Silicon Valley Bank, it was like 200 and 200 give or take. Like I, I blame the Fed for this, and I blame the Fed being someone who's absolutely supported the Federal Reserve in many moments in the past. I think central banks are totally vital in a crisis. If you hadn't had central banks 2008, 2009, if you hadn't had central banks in the spring of 2020 injecting massive amounts of liquidity, cash. Mm -hmm. into our systems just to make sure things don't implode. You might've had really, really catastrophic consequences, but in its zeal to fight inflation, uh, I think the federal has lost the narrative, you know, lost the reality of five or six or even 7% inflation after a global pandemic, after shutdowns, much of that inflation was actually working people making more money. Mm -hmm. The idea that this is a systemic risk that should be fought at all costs without recognizing that when you change any equilibrium really suddenly, you know, weird shit happens. And I think the Fed just lost the thread here. It's zeal to fight inflation. It just didn't recognize that if you do stuff, if you change equilibriums too fast, too quickly, you can create shocks that you don't expect. And I think Silicon Valley Bank, we can get into the specifics of it, had to do with what what bonds they were holding to meet their deposits. Uh, was caught in that maelstrom. But it's a maelstrom that the Fed, I think, created. Hmm. I I mean, I, I've no maybe Silicon Valley Bank's executives were lax in their risk controls and I'm sure there's a lots of critique there. But it's more like cancer may be a problem, but if you do too much chemo, you're gonna kill <laughs> yourself anyway. So right. inflation might be a problem, but if you do too much to defeat it, you you might just crush the system regardless.
0: There are no perfect solutions, only only trade offs at the end of yeah. the day. Um, But to tie it to the main subject uh, at hand, uh, you know, um, the very least one thing it sort of brought back to my recollection uh, is the sort of instinctive um, aversion that Americans have, so many Americans have, uh, to the idea of uh, bailouts and certainly sort of rushing into the aid of folks uh, who uh, would seem to have been abundantly blessed and the American uh, economy, and who perhaps had taken their own their own risks. And I just want to use that as sort of a pivot point to sort of move into this larger sort of question of what really divides us as Americans. You know, there's one um, particular sort of framing of American polarization that um, I think in in this uh, program we've found a number of opportunities to to, to talk about. Um, as possibly being the main one folks should be considering. So naturally, we think of polarization as a left-right phenomenon, and strictly speaking, there's nothing uh, incorrect about that. Um, But it's easy to look at American uh, society as being divided along establishment and populist lines. And, you know, in my experience, I remember... During the uh, controversy over the bailouts in, uh, in uh, 2000, and uh, what was that now? 2000, 2008, early 2009. It was something that fielded bipartisan support and bipartisan um, opposition. You know, um, Barack Obama and George W. Bush were on one side of this, uh, Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich, and uh, House Democrats and Republicans, uh, significant factions of each were, were on the other. And if we fast forward in time, you know, uh, the 2016 election was one that sort of set the stage, I think, for these larger sort of divergent currents in American political and social life. And, um, you know, on, on each side, you had a major sort of populist uh, tide rising, sort of the Bernie Sanders tide on the left, the Donald Trump's uh, uh, tide on, on the right. If you compare these two frames, the sort of standard sort of right versus left, you know, division of American political life versus uh, one that's focused more on this establishment versus sort of, you know, the, the, the people or sort of populist frame. What does more to uh, explain uh, American uh, political and social divisions in your mind? Or are they each perhaps equally, uh, equally clarifying or equally faulty?
1: I think, look, the one that's most in evidence, 2008, 2009, and now is more capital versus labor mm. than it is right, left. Or uh, you could kind of overlay some of the establishment with capital. First of all, with just on the specifics of what went on in the banking system in the past month, we're, we're having this conversation at the end of March. It's, I think, really kind of a mistake to describe it as a bailout. I mean, the shareholders yeah. of these mm-hmm. banks lost all their money. Sure. Anybody who's working there lost their jobs. I mean, it's hardly like they were rescued from their decisions. It's Mm -hmm. just the people who put money in these banks were were guaranteed their deposits. And I guess hand-wringing about whether or not that's legit, but that's not really a bailout Mm -hmm. and it didn't cost the federal government appreciable money.
0: There are no golden parachutes.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's like people lost a lot of money you know, for their decisions, which is as it should be. But then calling it a bailout, you know, scot-free is just wrong. There's a real capital labor divide. And what's fascinating about sort of the problem with what the Fed's doing now is that you saw the only real meaningful wage gains for sort of multiple quintiles of the American populace uh, from the middle of 2020 until end of 22 that you'd seen in literally generations. Hmm. And some of that was because of government stimulus and some of that was because suddenly People were in demand, so they were able to command more wages. That's a good thing. Uh, lower cost of living somewhat offset, you know, stagnant wages, but nonetheless, people making more money to meet more needs is a good thing. We mm-hmm. should celebrate that. But you do have this sort of pressure to, and, and you have Fed officials and economists and Wall Street people and even government people talking about wage inflation is a problem for the economy. You know, wage inflation is wage gains, right? And and, then that's going to do a huge, if you describe it as a problem, you're essentially feeding the legit feeling amongst a lot of people, labor, right? People who work that capital is in this privileged position. They don't pay the same taxes. They they get rescued when there's a problem and people who work get screwed. Uh, There's a lot of legit to that feeling. I mean, I think basically, you know, intense partisans are usually, in my view, wrong, meaning they're wrong about everything they see. Uh, The (laughs) passions of absolutism tend to obscure just the reality of how most people are living. So, you know, the idea that the rich don't pay taxes is just not true. (laughs) Statistically, Mm -hmm. the rich pay a huge amount of taxes in the United States. There are some wealthy people whose income is derived from passive gains on income Or real estate that actually do pay less taxes, but a lot of wealthy people pay an extreme amount of taxes. But these things have resonance. And I think that sort of the capital labor working versus not, which is a big one in American history. You've looked at this too. It was big in the 19th century. You know, farmers against city people. This is hardly a new Fisher, it may scan to left and right a little bit although i think you know as you've talked about a lot over the years the left right thing also has different dynamics particularly in the united states as a cultural right that isn't really commensurate with an economic populism i think there are a lot of divides in american culture you know race gender religion geography Hmm. class sometimes they're you know coincident sometimes they're not It's a divisive society, you know, it's a, it's a roiling, tumultuous, non-consensus democracy.
0: We, We don't pick our family. We don't really pick our, well, I suppose we sometimes pick our neighbors, but we don't pick our neighbors necessarily on the, you know, the national and even sort of state level or, you know, if, if circumstances affix us to a certain location, which they, which they often do. Right.
1: We got lots of issues, you know, pick, pick your issue at the given moment.
0: You know, your framing of, uh, capital versus labor as a primary way of sort of entering into the question of polarization is is a really fascinating one. Now that wouldn't have occurred to me to frame it in that way because I think I would have been grasping at the overlays that you mentioned, right? Um so left right establishment populist. But let's 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 pursue this a little bit. If you don't mind, I want to sort of appoint you defender of capital here or sure. just for just a second, because you made the point, you know, the, the wealthy pay, uh, you know, pay taxes uh, out of proportion to even what they, you know, even even what they what they make. I just want to ask you uh, to clarify a few few points here. Um, some people respond to that by saying, "Well, wait a second, you know, you've got these sort of major corporations that don't pay a dime in federal income tax and are able to sort of shelter their income." one place or another. Um, is that uh is that not a significant point? Is that a point in in error? What are what are people grasping at when they when they say that?
1: So look, it is certainly true that corporations until really the past three or four years were able to take advantage of global laws and differential treatment of, of capital in mm. different parts of the world to avoid paying uh, taxes on their corporate earnings. Mm. And which didn't mean that the individuals who were paid by those companies, right, mm-hmm. avoided taxes on their corporate earnings. I mean, Apple for many years in the 2010s parked a lot of its profits in Ireland, but Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, was still paying taxes on whatever his compensation was. Now, some of that was deferred and he was getting stock grants. So he probably wasn't paying taxes commensurate with his overall income package. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Apple and other corporations were able to take advantage of this. And there has been a move to close these kind of tax global loopholes where companies could say, well, I don't want to pay taxes in the US, so I'll put my taxes in another country. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think that uh, corporations are part of the commons and they should pay accordingly. And there's been real moves in that direction because that, as you said, has been a real issue. It's different for individuals. Right. You know, And that's where I think the, the narrative in the United States gets a little smushed there are a lot of parts of the world where wealthy people literally don't pay taxes. Like they they pay nothing that we can collect. And that's a real problem for societies that that could use the collective income. You know, there are things that we share in common that everyone should pay for, you know, road security, the federal aviation administration, making sure our flights don't crash into each other when we try to get from point A to point B Uh, defense, some degree of support for education, elderly healthcare. These are all the commons. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to live as part of a notional community, we, we bear a responsibility to that. And taxes are one way in which we support those things.
0: Let me throw another one uh, at you really quickly. The, the state of Washington, uh, I saw recently, there was a Supreme Court decision where if I understand it correctly, uh, they essentially um, opted to uh, tax capital gains, not as income, but as an excise tax, I mm-hmm. guess, as, as a sort of a a means towards sort of righting this wrong that many people perceive where in. income through wages is taxed at a higher weight rate than, than capital gains. Does that suggest a privileging of capital over labor or is there in your mind sort of a socially just explanation for why, you know, millionaires and billionaires would pay 15% on their investments as opposed to you know, the, underneath the sort of, you know, standard earned income, earned income rate.
1: So there is in the tax code privileging of capital, whether mm-hmm. that's capital that goes into real estate, whether that's capital that goes into, you know, stocks, bonds and other investments or hedge funds or private equity. And, and a lot of that has been driven by the self-interest of capital. The one thing that you, know, you can say about creating a system where capital is more fluid, i.e. Mm-hmm. there's less demands on it, taxes being one demand. Uh, is that capital motion does in fact is is embedded potential to create things constructively, and a lot of the argument comes down to is it better for government to be the to be the allocator of that capital, or should there also be a more fluid system where that capital gets allocated based on how people determine needs and it shouldn 't be an either or there is an absolutism in the way people argue about these things. And I think the left-right divide comes into a lot of the left believes uh, if it's about the common good, government's the best allocator of that common good. And the right mm. would believe that either the market or, or individuals are a legit allocator of that public good. It is observably true that balance is tricky to maintain, but it's a it's a balance that must be maintained. Mm. You know, societies that tip too much into government and government is simply this thing that we all collectively delegate some Responsibility to right, it's but if it starts becoming its own interest group and its own thing that basically acts as if it is the arbiter and the determiner of the public good, you know, you get into real problems that way. You know, the idea that government, whatever that means, government's just a group of people that we ostensibly elect, and that people we elect then appoint, i.e., you know, officials that are appointed by elected officials. The idea that that group is somehow without. The ability to make colossally bad decisions. Mm. You know, you do want a balance, yeah. and uh, one of the dynamics of American society has been a certain fluidity of what happens with money. We're unique in that way. You know, we didn't have aristocracy. We don't have embedded generations of power centers. Right. We have uh, education and money and a creed. And I do worry that in the zeal to tame capital because of its excesses, you'll just, you'll go too far in the other direction, which is who the hell is going to tame government in its excesses. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Government has the monopoly on force. We should never forget that. You know, be careful about delegating authority to institutions that at the end of the day, get to use power and guns and laws to constrain your behavior. Mm-hmm. That can be a really good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, are a really good thing. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> should be mindful of that
0: now to continue to play you know devil's advocate here just a, just a little bit i can imagine a person saying well yes as a strict matter government has a monopoly on force but is it not the case that at the end of the day uh corporate power has the <clears throat> has the uh capacity and wherewithal to purchase a, a political influence in a way that essentially you know makes the Politicians, the the puppets of the CEOs. I think many of us have sort of a a view of American politics, which says that you know behind the Hillary Clintons, behind the Mitt Romneys, behind the Barack Obamas, you have you know Carnegies and Rockefellers and Vanderbilts and or you know I mean, to update our <laughs> to update our references, you know the, the the tech giants or maybe you know it's the oil folks or whatnot. Pick your pick your stereotype. Um, What is wrong with that understanding of the relationship uh, between corporate power and finance and political political influence?
1: Because it's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. I and mean, like as someone who interacts with a lot of these worlds peripherally, you know, and I'm certainly by any definition a card-carrying member of the elite, yeah. <laughs> both in terms of education, privilege, money, all of it. You know, I am guilty as charged, and probably am you know first to line up on the uh, in the revolution, but. It is also true that when you really think about American democracy in particular, even within that elite, there are so many competing interests. And the idea that there's like one cohesive cabal that points in the same direction is just, I think, farcically wrong. And the idea that those that those elite centers of capital and corporations and politics line up on the same side of any particular issue, uh, they often nullify each other, but they certainly don't line up on the same side of an issue. You know, the pharmaceutical industry advocating for you know, non-importation of generic drugs because it will destroy some of the business model of of the pharma world doesn't like sit down with the oil companies and go. You know, we'll all agree on preserving something because they just they're they're in very different worlds. I mean, do interests converge? Sure, they converge. As you know, trying to build coalitions of any sort is devilishly difficult. And the idea that there's this like somehow cohesive cabal of corporate money and and bought officials. That all can kind of agree on the general directionality of American society. I just find there's both no evidence for and in our politics and our policies don't really line up that way. It would be great if life were that simple. You know, it would give you <laughs> a, an easy adversary and kind of an easy solution. I just don't see it. And I am someone who sees a lot of this. Now, maybe I'm blind and maybe I'm complicit and therefore I'd be the last person to see it because I'm in the middle of it and I benefit from it if you want to make that critique of what I've just said, by all means, make it. And I'll have Mm -hmm. that argument with you about whether or not that's true. But that's my pushback to that. You know, it just ain't that simple. Mm -hmm. And that even within this kind of elite, there are so many differentials, you know, I don't know where to place myself on the political spectrum. I believe in a massive social safety net that's non-mean tested for whoever needs healthcare and education and basic needs from childcare to old age care and medicine. And yet at the same time, I think government is wildly out of control in its regulatory framework and should be pared back. Mm-hmm. Where does that place me in the political <laughs> spectrum? Right. Am I way to the left? Am I way to the right? I'm not <laughs> libertarian. I'm not really Republican. I certainly don't fit as a Democrat. <laughs> I might vote as a Democrat and give money to Democrats because right. given my binary choices, that choice makes a lot of sense. But I, you know, where do I fit in that spectrum? And I, I, I'm not unique. I'm just one other person who doesn't fit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, I think um, you said something that is very, clearly and obviously true which is that in a sense it would be nice if the world were as simple as simple as that uh, narrative made it seem because you know we are always looking for clear and uh, easy adversaries easy to identify right and uh political narratives the ones that seem to gain traction and move people seem to be the ones that identify clear villains clear causes and maybe scapegoats for the problems that we have and and equally clear solutions whether or not they map onto the complexities of reality um so i want to take this to sort of the, uh, the 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 thrust of your work uh around the area of highlighting human progress and causing us to understand just how much we actually, I was going to say, how much we have to be thankful for. I don't know if that's a, a way that you would put it, but no, just how much is actually going right in society. Two questions here. One, you know, what is an accurate way of understanding sort of where American society in particular is at in the present moment in comparison to the doomsaying prognostications of left and right? And two, um, given that I, think that you have a bit more of an optimistic take on where we might be in comparison to others. Why is it difficult to get people to sort of see things in those terms? So there you
1: go. So, I mean, look, I would say, and and when I do some you know public speeches, I do say that you had a period in the 90s that was intensely euphoric. Yeah. End of the Cold War, government balanced budget, stock market is soaring. These kind of wild new technologies of kind of the web and telecom are just beginning to percolate in a a meaningful way. And there was a real utopian feeling of we were on the verge of kind of a new world and a new wave of wealth and connectivity and community. You had a similar, I think, surge of uh, optimism in the the European Union after 1992. You know, they're like, we're all going to come together and move forward in a way that after centuries of competition and conflict, uh, even China joining the WTO, you know, in, in December 2001, there was a feeling of like the world really was on a a glide path toward a lot of the dreams of progress that had animated people for centuries.
0: The end of history and the triumph of liberalism.
1: And pretty much since then, certainly for the United States, it's like been one piece of bad news after another, mm-hmm. right? You have uh, the, the stock market peaking in March of 2000. A peak that it you know didn't reach again for fifteen years, mm. <laughs> fifteen years, yeah. a little more than that. You had uh, kind of a recession based on the collapse of the telecom bubble, and you had nine eleven. You had uh, the war in Afghanistan. You had a massive recession in two thousand two. You had the invasion of Iraq, uh, which quickly went sour in terms of you know mission accomplished. Totally wasn't. Mm-hmm. You had revelations of metadata spying on Americans in the name of national security. You had revelations of torture at Abu Ghraib. You had a briefly kind of economic, frothy housing like woo, but it didn't it was never felt quite substantial, let's say from 2004 to 2006. Yeah. Then you had the beginnings of the collapse in 2007, the revelations of, you know we maybe we went to war on our faulty, if not maliciously faulty intelligence about Saddam and nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm the financial collapse in 2008, kind of a euphoric moment of the election of Obama, but then in the midst of this complete unraveling and collapse, then you have the rise of the Tea Party, political (laughs) divisions, brinksmanship, you know, followed by the rise of Trump and then COVID. I mean, it's like been one bad thing after another. So people are in an awfully, you know, there's like a generation that has not known respite from what seems to be bad news all around. And, you know, even with Trump, right, we have, frankly, a we do have a functional democracy, meaning we do have the rule of law. We do have the fact that uh, other than the blip of the rise of crime from 2021 till the end of 22, a blip that, by the way, is already going back down. Mm. You you never know that for the headlines, but, you know, crime has crested and is receding. It's not continuing to increase. We're kind of like addicted to the bad story of the past 21 years without recognizing that more people are still, you know, living their lives, uh, in a more stable way, certainly globally than ever before. You know, this past 22 years has may have been somewhat challenging for the United States, but it's been by far the best period materially for humanity ever mm. in terms of caloric abundance, safety from war, um, safety from governments that are, you know, instable and, you know, take stuff from you. Uh, I'm sure there are people listening to what I'm saying going, give me a break. You know, what about the war in Syria? What about Ukraine? What about North Korea? What about this? And what about that? But, you know, if you looked at 195 countries and you looked at the actual amount of war and the actual amount of violence and the actual amount of calories and the actual life expectancy and the actual number of people moving out of poverty and the actual literacy rates and the actual healthcare rates and the actual eradication of diseases around the world, even with the global pandemic and the setbacks that caused, you would see nothing but positive change. Um, I'm, You know, I'm not making this up. These yeah. are numbers. These are realities that are available for anyone to see. Mm. Uh, the fact that they are completely at odds with most people's sensibilities of the world is a really, it's a conundrum. It's it's a problem. It speaks to the degree to which we human beings are, you know, we're wired for scarcity and we're wired for conflict. Mm. So we'll seek it and find it. Uh, also means that material gains doesn't translate into spiritual contentment.
0: And that's exactly where I wanted to go with that next here. So is it, is it perhaps the case that part of what prevents us from being able to see sort of the big picture as you laid it out, you know, the big picture being one that, you know, is ultimately perhaps much more positive than not. But is that perhaps part of the explanation for why we are discontent? In other words, is it perhaps the case then to some degree we are moving up in general along maslow's hierarchy of needs and in so doing finding ourselves experiencing new ways of being sort of dis- discontent i mean you know when you're when you're hungry and all you can focus on is you know getting the next meal when you get that next meal there's actually a real satisfaction that goes beyond just feeding the body when you're when you're eating it But when you find yourself, you know, eating relatively well day by day, you know, suddenly you have time and space to be conscious of perhaps some of the other things that you that you lack. And we live in a time now where even though, you know, our caloric intake is pretty satisfactory, um, perhaps it's the the case that our spiritual intake, our relational capital, our social capital um, is much less so. This is a period of time in which people are socially polarized, lonely. Loneliness, of course, has been described as an epidemic by many experts. And we are finding ourselves wrestling with new elements of uh, information, uh, communication technology, social media, obviously, which seems to be sort of turbocharging our our appetite and capacity for social conflict, albeit in the in the digital space, but in ways that seem to derange our collective sense making, is there a relationship then between our general affluence and material security, and the fact that we are just so damn unhappy
1: today? It seems. You know, it's a great question. Um, part of my answer to that is, you know, looked at the past a lot. I mean, I was trained as an historian. They're way better historians than I am. But (laughs) I don't know where you look for human happiness in the past in Mm -hmm. some sort of golden age fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, in America, people talk about the 1950s. They'll even talk about nostalgically the 60s where civil rights and women's rights and... You know, the 1950s were like a weird anomaly. The United States emerges from World War II with half the world's industrial production, unscarred by conflict, feeling like it had won. I mean, you'd be happy, too, if that was your context. <laughs> and, you know, that lasted like 15 years. And then the baby boomers grew up and they were royally pissed off. Uh, so I don't know where this human happiness moment, this human contentment, this thing we think we've lost. I don't know where in the past it was found. You know, loneliness is an epidemic. Sure. If you grew up in a small town in the United States or the Midlands of Britain or somewhere in France or somewhere in Russia, you had community. You couldn't really leave. Mm. That community is great, but it wasn't great if you were gay. It wasn't great if you had different views. It wasn't great if you, you know, were a woman and wanted to read. I mean, I don't. I don't know where the romanticization of these communities comes from. This idea that we, we had belonging and now we're lonely. Mm. We have very high expectations for for something resembling human contentment. And that's great. We should have high expectations for something resembling human contentment. But the idea that we had it in the past and we've lost it in the present, I just think is, you know, to use a genial world, hogwash, right? Mm -hmm. Or bullshit. Uh, Is is it your understanding
0: that there is evidence to suggest that, you know, I I guess perhaps in, in comparison to, you know, the 1950s or earlier, uh, or generations between then and and i 'm not exactly sure when the decline is supposed to have started, but uh is it your understanding that there 's evidence that social isolation is on the rise that people have fewer you know close friends that they used to certainly you know uh affect polarization there 's a fair amount of data to show quite clearly that you know interpersonal relationships between people on the basis of their political parties is drastically drastically deteriorated, you know, used to be a time in the area you mentioned that people really didn't care if you were a Republican or a Democrat, that's hardly the, the case today. And of course it sets the stage for, I suppose you could say, cancel culture and all of these other things. But do you think that there's an empirical basis for saying that there's a problem here, which suggests that the problem is real, or is this sort of illusory in your, in your mind?
1: I think it's totally illusory. And even what you just pointed mm-hmm. to is yeah. Effective polarization as we currently can measure it is on the rise and it was probably greater than it was in 1970, but racial polarization was way greater in 1970 than it is mm-hmm. today. Sure. Religious polarization was way greater in the United States at earlier points. I mean, mm. John Kennedy running for a Catholic as a Catholic was a real problem in 1960. Right. Yeah. And, 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 like there's been different types of polarization. And once you get, you know, Beyond 50 years, your data set falls apart because people weren't even asking these questions. We didn't even think to conceptualize society in this way. Mm -hmm. So you start trying to compare realities without a statistical framework to do so. And then you're left with, you know, is our polarization or our loneliness or our sense of dissatisfaction greater in 2022, 2023 than it was in 2012 or 2000 or 1990? And I don't think that's enough time to make any conclusions other than the fact that human beings change their discontents and their needs pretty quickly in a world that, you know, the one thing that's manifestly true about our world today is that the vast amount of transparency and information and the pace of of change is, in fact, greater. Mm-hmm. Those are clearly true.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the other things, I don't know that they're clearly true. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what people... If you could have the same data set about 1880 or 1780 in multiple societies, that would be really interesting. You know, maybe we'd be able to draw some comparisons about causality and change. But, you know, my friend Jonathan Haidt, who I think has done amazing work about uh, polarization in kids and the rise of, of social media and its effects on teens. And you know, even looking at suicide rates, you know, they they went down in the 2000s and early into like 2010, then they started going up sharply, you know, 20, 30%, but they're still kind of where they were in the 1970s. You know, the internet wasn't around in the 1970s. Is hmm. there causality there? I don't know. So I, I just find a lot of this, like we're grasping for causality. And, and I, I think a lot more of the causality is that human beings are just like really messy hmm. and right. they're messy aggregately and they're messy individually. Yeah. And it's not like I think that there are things that aren't harmful you know i probably would not want to live in pyongyang and and deal with the north korean regime and its attempts to micromanage every aspect of my life or kill me for the things that it can't micromanage like that's probably a bad thing yeah. so i'm not i'm not saying it's all relative mm. but i do think there's a lot more fuzziness here than we think
0: well one thing that certainly makes it particularly easy i think to romanticize the the 1950s and you know i suppose even the 19 19- 1960s, and we certainly do romanticize the 60s as well. Although I think in a bit of a different way, because we lionize the, the moral triumphs of the right. of the 60s. Um, but you know, we had we had Hollywood there to provide us the actual romanticization in in real time of so many things, right? So you know, you can go back and look at the old Cary Grant and you know Cary Grant movies, and and um, you know remember John Wayne and. And uh, Sidney Poitier and, you know, depending on who you're looking at and see the story of American greatness spelled out before us. Right. Um, I also think that it's the case that progress, it's easy to look at it as occurring on sort of, uh, you know, there being just one line on the graph. Right. But some things are going up and some things are going down at the same same time and maybe they sort of switch places as uh, as you move along the axis um I definitely take your point that on the one hand political polarization per se was less of a problem then but religious polarization more so it used to be if you look at the uh questions they're asking the you know fifties or sixties at least you know they asked the question well do you You know, parents, do you care if your child marries a Republican or a Democrat? You know, low single digits uh, percentage of people really cared about that. But would you care if your child married a Catholic or a Protestant? You know, upwards of half of Americans had a real issue with that back then. Those those numbers have completely flipped.
1: Or someone of a different race, you know, as well. I mean, that's still that's still attention. Right. But it's it's way less of attention than it was, let alone being gay. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Way less of attention now. and of course. You know, one thing that perhaps purchased the uh, well, not perhaps, I think clearly purchased some of the comedy uh, or at least sort of the cooperation between the two parties back then was uh, sort of a mutual exclusion of African-Americans in particular from really buying into the political process and uh, having the benefits of of uh democratic participation at least until you get to the triumphs of the civil rights movement in the 19 in the 1960s and of course it was a bipartisan vote of congress that ultimately passed the civil rights act but it revealed a geographical divide you know southern democrats opposed the civil rights act actually to the extent to which there were southern republicans they opposed it uh as as well you know um so and and by the way
1: it, it kind of took the assassination of JFK in in November of 63 yeah to really pave the way for Johnson to shepherd the civil rights bill I mean mm-hmm. it, it may have passed anyway but it was not a clear you know getting southern democrats or clearing them out legislatively was was not a clear path right under right. Kennedy
0: yeah no it's an excellent point um my dad always uh, I I grew up in a house where we very much romanticized the 1950s and the 1960s, the era of of uh, JFK and of good music. You know, um, my father's uh, I, you may know a bit about my family. My grandfather owned Dot Records back in the late 50s, early 60s, which was America's biggest independent record. It was Pat Boone's record label. Right. You know um and uh the way my dad always said it to me was that uh, America had its problems back then but we were moving in in the right direction you know and um i think that um when you talk about the in a, the sort of uh incompleteness of the data set we have right cuz we're asking questions now that you couldn't have, could, couldn't even have had data for you know 100 years ago like you say you know 20 30 40 years it's like a very it, what can be a significant or a relatively insignificant period of time from the vantage point of our larger sort of empirical understanding of the trend lines of human society is nevertheless a very significant period of time, the lived experience, so to speak, of, of actual people, actual human beings. Right. Um, and so, you know, when we, um, travel over the, the arc of recent, uh, recent American history, it's certainly true that people's experiences are changing dramatically and new voices are showing up in the convert, in the conversation. Um, so I, I, I suppose that one thing that I try to account for a little bit in how we understand where we're at um, in this moment is by sort of reckoning with the fact that, you know, on the one hand, you have some folks whose comfortable station in American life is being sort of attacked from all ends, and I don't just mean that financially, but just in sort of adapting to the technological landscape of modern American life, the generational sort of experience of that probably accounts for some degree of discontent. On the other hand, when you talk about people of color, you talk about people who are minorities in terms of their their, uh, sexual lifestyle, gender identification, so on and so forth. You have people who are ascending the ladder of visibility in American life, sort of bringing narratives into the public discourse that may have always been there in in some some way but we were never weren't featured because you didn't have as many African Americans in corporate america you didn't have as many people of color in the universities you didn't have people's stories being sort of equitably shared in hollywood and entertainment and so forth well to put it simply on the one hand we have technology sort of exploding right right on the other hand we have demography sort of exploding um the collision between sort of the storylines of people who have been sort of historically oppressed through 1619 project, for instance, sort of understanding of American life, sort of, sort of pushing through and sort of revealing a certain stream of discontent there, um, you know, in, in the midst of sort of the explosion of Twitter and social media and and all of these, all of these uh, sorts of things. Um, it, is there a way in which we're we 're grappling with cultural changes and technological changes simultaneously in a way that makes this somewhat unprecedented in in the the um, the potency of the polarization that that faces us the complexity of the polarization that faces us
1: I, th- I think one of the only real complexities that I see is that you know probably more people now in more parts of the world, not just the United States believe that their individual voices should be heard hmm. and should have some sort of purchase in the public sphere and that the policies that follow should, you know, echo those voices. I think that expectation shared by more people than ever is, is part of what's creating such messy noise. Hmm. There was elites, there was power centers where people either thought they could never really exert that power or were willing to delegate it or willing to allow for it. So I think it's less about polarization than it is about just, you know, mass small D democracy everywhere in the world. Hmm. Some of that, you know, controlled and suppressed, but, and I know that's kind of counter to the narrative of stronger governments and more controlling governments like China. And I think we're probably getting the story of China completely wrong at the end of the day. <laughs> hmm. with what's going on there domestically and what they represent. Internationally, I think that efflorescence of human voices and expression, which is manifest on the internet, you know, everybody has a voice, right? Everybody right, can right. say anything. Yeah. Of course, everyone can say everything, and no one really listens to anything. But that's a <laughs> that's a flip side to the problem.
0: Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: And I don't so again, so again I think polarization is too. It, it's kind of a too easy thing because look, you've done these studies too, and you really get down to it. Most people share a basic there's a lot more consensus about, you know, basic needs. Right? Right. Everybody wants good schools, safe streets, healthcare, care, uh, more security, access to medicine, no war. You know, it's not like <laughs> those, those, those things tend to be pretty basic. Uh, and they're not necessarily basic everywhere in the world. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a lot of consensus in Afghanistan right now. I don't have an answer to the problems. I, I do think we're misdiagnosing a lot of what's going on in our in our attempt to oversimplify and over clarify. And I do you think the effects of technology is that everyone has a voice or everyone believes they should have a voice or can have a voice or, and then can get incredibly frustrated when that voice isn't heard and things don't move in a commensurate fashion. And it makes it awfully hard to build a consensus of any sort to do anything. All those realities, you know, even today, right, the federal government actually does pass a lot of laws. We just don't hear about them.
0: Mm.
1: Bipartisan laws. Yeah. About you know, access to personal information or, uh, farming bills or education. I mean, there's a lot that gets done in Congress. Someone should like keep an equal track of bills that were passed except bills that get passed that are kind of small things that are solving problems. Don't get any attention because nobody's fighting about them. Mm-hmm. They're agreeing.
0: All right. Yeah. You, um, wrote a history once, if I recall, about the history of cooperation, uh, the history of peace between Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Peace be upon you. Um, yes. I remember this book that you, that you wrote. And I, I seem to remember you making sort of a similar point about the long history of sort of the relationship between the faith there, that, that we're not really good at telling the history of peace. People just aren't wired to pay attention to the things that, That go right, and I I guess this is a bit of a theme, uh, you know, that we can track across this sort of, you know, the 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 commentary of Zachary Carabel over over the years. But if you if you've felt that it's important to to fill that space a, a bit to sort of show how it is that you know in certain to to sort of tell tell the stories about the things that are actually going right. You must also believe that there's damage done when we fail to do that,
1: right? Yeah. Unless you tell the stories of the world you want to be in and the world you want to create, you undermine people's ability to believe it's possible. Right. And I, and I think we don't do ourselves a service by looking at things that have gone right mm-hmm. or by looking at things that have gone right always with a yes but. Right. So I don't think there's anything wrong with lionizing the civil rights movement mm-hmm. as a way of saying, hey, there was a big injustice that we began to rectify. It doesn't have to be followed by a yes, but there's all these things that are still wrong. Mm. Like that can be that can be its own separate conversation. Right. Everything doesn't have to be caveated mm. up the wazoo. Everything doesn't have. To, everything good does not have to come with a yes, but there's plenty of space for. The, and you know, we did a good job rectifying a problem. And there's a lot of work still to do. Right. That's fine. And there's space for that. But the idea that everything. Uh, is provisional. Like everything's provisional. We're all going to die anyway. So it's like life is provisional, but we don't, I think, serve ourselves by a laser-like, almost obsessive focus on what's negative. It is certainly true that more than at other points in the past, one of the incentives of attention in a noisy world are hot emotions. This is right. a lifelong conundrum for me. You know, can you stand on a soapbox on a crowded corner and yell, everybody calm down? <laughs> uh, and anger and fear are just more potent in the short term than uh, hope and calm. You know, hate is more visceral than love. All these things are just true as a as a human emotion. Hot emotions in the short term dominate cool emotions, and then there's incentive for that. Mm. And I wrote the book about peace be upon you as a way of saying the stories of war and conflict are absolutely true, but they're like reading every other page of a book or every third page of a book. Mm. You know, what you read is true, but if you only, if you only read that the aggregate story is false. Right. And I feel that's what we're doing with our present and our view of progress and our view of what's gone right is that we're so relentlessly focused on what hasn't yet gone right or what is still wrong that we distort our reality to the point of non-reality. You know, we create an illusion of our present that is incredibly distorted in a negative way. And I, you know, believe that with every bone in my body. And I try to work in a way that supports the alternative while acknowledging the complexity. Uh, And I too live in a yes, but universe, which is, I feel the constant need to say as a way of offsetting potential criticism. I get that there are problems. I get that there are problems. I get that there are problems. There are problems. There are, there are. And I mean it, I mean, I'm not saying that gratuitously, but I would like to have to say it less <laughs> <laughs> Right. and not be faced with the accusation that I'm there for sort of whitewashing or being Pollyannish.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that your project, the project of the Progress Network, which I am, of course, happy and proud to be affiliated with, along with many other um, great thinkers and contributors to society, um, myself <laughs> probably least among them, but, you know, it seems to me like it is, in fact, a deeply practical project. It would be easy to look at it and think it's just an idealistic one. Um, but for the reasons that you say, um, if we don't, um, we don't tell the story of <clears throat> what is right, um, how easy is it to take the problems that are perhaps somewhat Contrived and make them real through our insistence on the idea that that is the only story that we are living through, you know the stories of our troubles
1: you know and the work you do at uniting America is also a way of saying, hey people let's take a step back here and see the realities of common ground um, as opposed to you know paying such relentless focus on everything that divides us and the pragmatism is one of Like societies that start believing collectively that everything is really messed up and that the future is dark, just have a hard time, you know, galvanizing energies of young, old, in the middle to meet those problems. You know, Mm. if you don't believe you can, it's hard to then do it. You know, that's true individually. It's true collectively.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, It's not like the power of positive thinking, but it is a power of, you know, focusing on the unknowability of the future. And the certainty that we're all in the process of individually and collectively creating a future that is not written and not certain. And I think too much of our present tense despair in the United States and elsewhere kind of assumes a future without recognizing that that future is unwritten. Mm. And it assumes foreknowledge of bad things, which I think is a lack of humbleness, you know. None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. <laughs> and we should honor that and honor the degree to which there are a lot of pathways ahead of us. Some are really bad. Some are kind of mediocre. Some are utopianly beautiful. And that we, what we do now shapes that, you know, not some preordained future that we're all enthralled to and subjects of and passive in the face of
0: perhaps ironically liberating note I think we can leave it for the next conversation Zachary thank you so much and uh,
1: it's always a pleasure thank you John
0: thank you for listening to Uniting America if you'd like to support the show you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating review or suggestions follow me on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and tune in for more content and learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org